Welcome to the Rocks Back Pages podcast. My name's Barney Hoskins. I'm here with my RBP colleague, Mark Pringle. Hello, Barney. Hello, Mark. In this week's podcast, we're going to be talking, as usual, about everything that's new on RBP, including an audio interview with Steve Earle, who releases a new album with the Dukes next week. We'll talk a little bit about Lana Del Rey, the featured Free on RBP artist, who also has a new album next week called Norman Beeping Rockwell. Is that Norman fucking Rockwell, Barney? Thank you, Mark. <laughs> you, I could rely on you to give it the full yeah. uh, title. Um, and we'll be talking about, among other artists, Lou Adler, Edwin Collins, Sinead O'Connor, and Biggie and Tupac. Not a duo, of course, but it <laughs> to sound like that. But first, order of business, I'd like to welcome our very special guest, Mr. Tony Stewart. Hello, Barney. Hello, Mark. Hi, Tony. Hello, Tony. <laughs> Lovely to have you here. Tony, just, you were the first guy practically I ever wrote for at the NME, and I owe you a huge amount, and I have very fond memories of working at NME, also terrifying memories of working at NME. This was the early 80s, and Tony, you were the, you were the features editor of of NME, which had once been, and of course, the New Musical Express when New you Musical joined Express. it. Yeah. Yes, yes. <laughs> so you were the features editor. Yeah. You were the boss, really. Uh... <laughs> oh, well, there's, there's, a cat sort of, among the there's all sorts of conspiracy <laughs> theories. I, I just have to say to other people, let it go, let it go. <laughs> Serenity when, now. When did you first join NME? In September 1971. So you saw the transformation of the paper under Nick Logan. Was Nick Logan already uh, edited by then? No, no he was no, the deputy dep- editor. Yeah, the guy who was responsible for the changes, mm-hmm. i.e. affecting them, was Alan Smith. Oh, Smith. It's Alan Smith who actually... Oh, yeah. right, yeah. And he... Nick was his deputy, right. but Nick was the creative brains of the outfit, yep. and Alan was the man that was fighting IPC, the owners of the time, all the time. Yeah. So it was quite... Interesting times. They were, yeah. I mean, I remember when I first joined NME, going down to Top of the Pops to interview Shirley Bassey. <laughs> <laughs> going to Judy Fantastic. Collins' reception. Burley chassis. Yeah, Burley chassis. Uh <laughs> Reviewing Sandy Denny. Yeah. Yep. And then being involved with kind of like, I was being freelance for about a year before that in the Midlands. So I'd met various bands like Status Quo yeah, sure. and Genesis. Uh-huh. And so I wanted to do these acts as well yep. when I joined NME. But it was really probably a year, 72, 73, when the big changes occurred. The Charlie Murray's and Charlie the Murray, Kent. Yep. Kent, um, a bit later, Mick Farron. Yeah. So we were the squares, I suppose. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, were you, were, you, were you at all alarmed by these, these sort of freaky characters coming in? I mean, did you think, oh, my God, this is, this is a little bit threatening? No, well, not particularly, no. I was a bit more alarmed when Parsons and Birchall turned up. <laughs> 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 they yeah. were scary times. <laughs> the short hair, The kinder bunker. Yeah. Yes. wire on top of it. But no, I think it was just evolving yeah, yeah. kind of, I suppose, what the, the, the phrase now is organically. Yeah, yeah. So you didn't yeah. really notice so much that you just knew they were trying to get good writers, that Rolling Stone in America was the iconic yeah. music paper that... Yeah. NME was in certain ways 
you know, kind of emulating, but also Melody Maker was extremely good at that time. Mm. Extremely uh, good. I, I, I think a lot of people forget that. I yeah. mean, they had writers like Richard Williams, Michael Watson, so on and so forth. And Hollingworth, Roy um, Hollingworth. Yeah. yeah. I was a Melody Maker reader, as was everyone I knew, up to 72-ish. Got packed off to boarding school for a transgression involving hashish, and, <laughs> and, and, and came back to London in '73. And everyone had started reading the NME. Mm. It was like '72 to '73. It was like suddenly that was the paper on the college tables and the canteen tables as the NME, coinciding very much with like the rise of David Bowie and so on and so forth as, as, as well. Absolutely. So it's big, big changes. All, all yeah. I mean, look, you had long hair yourself in that era, Tony. As, 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 we, as we can see, looking at the picture, we're going to be featuring on the home page. You look, you look like the keyboard player in a prog rock band. <laughs> Moody Blues. Yeah, um, a, but I mean, Cavalier look. <laughs> yeah, so it's not like when you say, so we were the squares and, and these freaks were coming in. I mean, you weren't, obviously, you weren't squares, but there was a new kind of direction was, the paper was taking. It was definitely a new era. I mean, I do remember kind of like my first week on NME which involved getting drunk with Richard Green oh uh, well <laughs> Richard Green showed me his, how to do expenses that was, that was, that was <laughs> invaluable lesson yeah. I'm sure so course, he said get the tube everywhere but claim a cab everywhere we're allowed to because we're a national music paper and we earn loads of money for IPC and then another journalist had been on the road with... If I say the name of the band, I'll give away the name of the journalist, so I won't. But he was playing a tape of various activities in a shower with a young lady, for whatever reason. <laughs> another writer was sitting in the lap of Nick Logan. That was Julie Webb. And she was one of the first sort of like Female writers writers. Yeah. of yeah. that era. Yeah. So that was good. And there was James Johnson, who was a very posh, you know, very well-spoken yeah. chap. Poshers were allowed in. Yeah, yeah. Okay. And then Nick Logan seemed to spend a lot of time when he wasn't doing the NME stuff, sort of rebuilding his house, as far as I can remember. <laughs> I remember well, him ringing, well. Yeah, I remember him ringing up for supplies of wood, some kind of timber. So it was a strange, it was a very strange office. Yeah. And then, of course, the other people started coming. There was Pete Erskine, of yes. course. And these guys came from the underground that's, press. Well, I mean, that, that, that's what got me, because I'd been reading the underground press for a good two or three years before then, in fact, for longer than that, and suddenly seeing these names that I'd read in International Times and Friends and Oz and so on and so forth, suddenly there they were in the NME, and that was a real game-changer for, for myself and certainly a lot of my friends. You know, these were writers we already respected and liked, and now they were in a national music paper. Yeah, and I think they thought, like Nick Kent, for example, in his intro to uh, Dark Stuff, he couldn't believe that somebody would pay him money to do things <laughs> that he really liked doing. Because, of course, Nick was the archetypal rock star that wasn't. That's right. And yeah. And they were they were great guys. I mean, Charlie Murray was a really great guy, you know, so there wasn't any problem in that. I mean, I felt kind of outside it a bit in that I was in a in a relationship. I had three children. I'd, I moved out of London mm -hmm. in the sort of mid-70s, so I was kind of living in suburbia. And I felt a little bit... So I was very grounded with my family life. Yep. These other guys were having a social life that revolved around... You know, going to clubs a lot. I mean, I did go out to yeah. a lot of gigs. I'm, what's interesting reading the paper is you don't get a sense of that division. That that there is a, not not a conformity, but there's a unity of voices. Whether it's Roy Carr 
or yourself, Monty Smith and so on and so forth, and the Farrans and so on. So, you know, that it's not like they're the hippies and they're the straights. That's not the impression you Although get. Although when paper. you saw pictures of like Nick Kent and a little bit later Max Bell, it brings to mind that famous quote from Brian Wilson being interviewed by Nick Kent and Brian goes, you look more like a rock star than I do. Um, and there was yeah. an element of that. I mean, particularly when, you know, Nick Kent, this sort of pretty boy sway, looked like a member of the Rolling Stones. You felt very much that these were like embedded insiders. They were part of the whole, they were part of the band virtually they were almost like the six rolling stones or six stooges or something yeah well that's absolutely true they they really got in deep and they wrote like that yeah yeah i mean nick i've just read you know the dark stuff again i, I bought it when it was reissued a few weeks ago and i just can't believe how brilliant well i can believe how brilliant nick kent was but because i've got another perspective on nick kent that when i became a commissioning editor He'd deliver copy written on the back of cornflake packets. This is, this is the legendary story. Of, <laughs> gave you a lot of practical problems. And it was also frustrating waiting on the night before press day mm. for copy to come in at midnight. And you were just thinking, fuck, will it ever arrive? Will Nick ever get here? Yeah. And I think some, not me, but I think other people took, Neil Spencer, the editor of NME, took drastic action at one point and sacked Nick. Mm. And then Nick went off and he got involved with Nick Logan at the face. And Nick Logan always believed in yeah. Nick Ken. Yeah. Yes. So I don't think there, there was never, with that group, there was never animosity. I suppose when Parsons and Birchall turned up, much as I like Tony and Julie, there was a lot of you know fractious yeah behavior in the office mm. there's even you know mick farron was involved with fisticuffs with parsons so was monty he should smith have, should have hit him harder <laughs> <laughs> but it all kind of it, in some way it was the the sort of like i suppose it was the genius of the editor's yeah. concern brought it all together yeah mm. I mean, you know, for younger listeners or anyone who doesn't know that much about the sort of golden age of, of 70s rock journalists, I mean, the enemy really did change the nature of the kind of discourse or the conversation. There was a completely different relationship that you had with rock music through reading the enemy. In fact, Tony, just looking at the three pieces of yours that we've selected, there's no doubt that... So there's an interview, a legendary interview with Freddie Mercury <laughs> and an almost as legendary interview with Van Morrison. Now, these are almost like deconstructions of the sort of classic entertainment interview because they are pieces about the interview process aren't they now that, yeah. that's something that simply wouldn't have happened even five years before so with freddie he's having a go at you and the press and it's a conversation about almost about the relationship between music journalism and a huge band like Queen. As for Van Morrison, well, we'll talk about that in a minute. We'll talk about Van the Man in, in, in a minute. But talk a little bit about that, if you would. The great charge was that sort of too many journalists were sort of, in a sense, putting themselves in the stories. But actually, it made for great copy. And you do, you write about almost like Tony Stewart in the third person in the Van Morrison piece. Yeah, well, I think that that was the important change that, I mean, I'm, I'm not ashamed to say this, but probably Nick Kent and Charles. Charlie Murray and other people wrote better features than I did and they were very much the stars of Enemy but the idea was that they would put themselves in that place. I mean I remember an Elton John piece that Charlie did which was just, it might have been the first time that Elton John came out and said that he was, 
I'm not gay. sure whether he said he was bisexual right. or he was gay, but the sort of mm-hmm. sexual ambiguity was there. With brilliant pictures by Joe Stevens, as far as I can remember, where Elton John pulled his trousers down and was wearing a pair of Y fronts. And it's because that. <laughs> that really is shocking. <laughs> it's because kind of you got very close to the bands and you didn't want to be fed a PR line. Precisely. And that's. When I got the job on NME by getting a Steve Winwood interview, because mm. I walked up to him backstage at the Belfry in Sutton Coalfield, just went up Top and glamour. said, can I do an interview with you, Steve? It's the Traffic Welton to the Canteen Tour. And this chap came over and said, excuse me, who are you? And I just said, oh... I work for the Burton Daily Mail and I freelance for <laughs> NME. And they've asked me to get this interview. So you just lied about Steve. freelancing for the NME? No, no. You? I, no, you were. I was. Okay. And Sounds at the same time, they wanted this Steve Winwood interview. And so he said, well, he's just going on stage. Would you mind coming back later? And sort of, if you ask for me, I'll try and sort something out. Mm. And in my naivety, I just said, well, who are you? And he mm. said... I'm Chris Pat. Well, I don't know Highland Record. Huh? <laughs> nice to meet you, Chris. Okay. Thank you. So I went backstage, got the interview. It was the front cover of NME, and I got offered the job. Now, when I got to London, I suddenly discovered that there was this huge PR machine around artists so that they control mm-hmm. who was interviewing who. And it's got to be said that, for example, with Queen, when they started out, they always chose partisan journalists those who liked the music. And in fact, a lot of people you interviewed were people that you kind of, you liked their music, you wanted to talk about, you were fans. And I suppose what happened was, going back to the traffic story, my exclusive Steve Winwood interview, was we wanted to break down those barriers of the PR controlling what was said in the press. Because a lot of it was just, well, frankly, bollocks. Yeah. Mm. And so it was kind of good to get in depth. And then, of course, the articles, again, I suppose, influenced by Cream and Rolling Stone in America, mm. became longer and longer. Yeah, there yeah, were yeah. stories. <clears throat> there, were, there was more to it. There was even more to Ian Anderson, who I... I remember Nick Logan saying to me, Tony, honestly, I really think you've tried to find too much going on in Ian Anderson's head. I'll never forget, because I adopted a well, lot of the Nick's bands. is that... Nick was a very early flag waver for Jethro Tull. Absolutely. You know, which Not is a band something... that ever appeared in the face. <laughs> <laughs> and something he'd probably, he'd probably rather forget, which is possibly why he's resistant <laughs> to us running his stuff on the site. <laughs> <laughs> well, I, I kind of adopted a lot of Nick's bands mm. when he became more of a production mm-hmm. person, mm. commissioning editor. So I kind of happened to turn up in Enemy, having a similar interest in mm. the bands that he'd been yeah. writing yeah. about. So I think that was really, you know, we did want to find out something more. We wanted a story that was behind the people other than just the bland old PR stuff that had been put out. Interesting, though, it is now to look back with a certain amount of nostalgia and find out what certain favourite colours. Well, you know, I mean, it's interesting because one of my favourite writers on the site is Dawn James, who wrote for Rave in the 60s. And her interviews are anything but PR fluff, and she's yeah. very, very good at revealing often quite unpleasant personalities of some of the people she interviews. I mean, she did an interview with Peter Frampton when he was with the herd, and she allows him to slaughter himself out of his own mouth and just prints, prints it up. So 
it was possible. There were some writers who were capable of doing that before. But it was rare. But it was very rare, yeah, yeah. absolutely. Talking yeah. of PRs, Tony, I mean, the Van Morrison piece is brilliant because one of our long-time writers, the great Keith Altham, who we've had on RBP for, for almost Forever. 20 years, yeah, yeah. You know, was, in fact, the PR on this trip to Ireland yeah. with Van Morrison and has a kind of more than a cameo role in the piece. <laughs> so the piece, the piece is really... And, of course, it's all centred around this documentary that Michael Radford is making about Van. So you write about all of this. Everything is sort of exposed in a very interesting way. And, of course, Van is being absolutely just so bloody-minded and so difficult, so contrary. <laughs> and it's a really long piece. Yes, it and is. It's, and it's just fascinating. I mean, it's interesting that you chose those two pieces, the Freddie Mercury and the Van Morrison, which in some ways can't have been the most enjoyable interviews you ever did. No, no going to the Van Morrison one first, I mean, that... I decided to write it in the third person because I kind of was influenced by the new journalism of Tom Wolfe and yeah. etc., which came in with Charlie and Nick and yep. people, mm-hmm. you know, and also crime writing like Elmore Leonard and stuff like that. You know, there's a totally different writing culture. And I decided that it would really be better in the third person. You know, credit to Neil Spencer, he allowed it. Because I wanted to give an insight into the whole process yeah, about exactly. how the journalist had been set yes. up. In a way, it's the kind of the journalist has his revenge in print. They, <laughs> they don't have any there comeback. Is that. And I thought, uh, I, you know, I absolutely own up to that with Freddie Mercury. I said, well, you might be being a, an absolute prat with me now, but I will have my revenge. And that's what you think about when you're doing the, the sort of like the asides. And those asides probably weren't spoken at the time. You write them in afterwards. Mm. And with Van Morrison, I was a huge, huge fan of Van Morrison. I loved his music. That's why I wanted to then do you the piece. Then I met him. <laughs> and uh, Keith, Keith Olsen, who I knew and still know really well, yeah. thought we'd make a good pairing. There's a lot of secrecy about it. Sure. You know, We weren't allowed to tell the other journalists on the junket. It was Van's return to Northern Ireland after God knows how many mm-hmm. years, since I think he played with them. And we was, you know, Keith put us in a car together so we'd try and bond and it didn't work. That didn't work. work. (laughs) (laughs) He drove for three hours and 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 nobody spoke for more than five minutes. No, it was just awful. Awful. I was squadged in the back of the car between two people who one turned out to be Mike Radford, but I didn't know who he was at the time Mm -hmm. because I'd just arrived in Belfast the night before. So it was all pretty dreadful. Then, of course, they set up this this interview with the cameras rolling for the documentary that they were making and I kind of I didn't I didn't really want to do it like that but it was the only way I was going to get the interview so I decided yeah I'd do it and then it turned into this awful awful just humiliation he just Van Morrison ripped into me as a member of the press you know telling me I must be mad asking these questions and I thought well okay I'm just going to present everything as it happened and that's exactly how it happened people can decide themselves whether they think Van Morrison is I'm just curious because you know to some extent his reputation preceded him Um, even going back to them we've got a couple of interviews on the site where the whole band but particularly Van are being vile to the journalist 
One of whom happens to be Keith Oldham. Uh, uh, How ironic. <laughs> uh, I mean, Van was really prickly with the press from the very, very earliest days of his career. He was born prickly. Yeah. yeah. I remember reading, I think maybe Max Bell interviewed him after your one, maybe three, four years after. And it went well. And Max was clearly staggered that this man in front of him was being quite polite and quite helpful because everyone he'd talked to had met Van said he's a handful he's a difficult yeah I think Roy Carr got on well with Van yeah. as well yeah and he did uh, pieces but you know I did get my revenge but not so much in print it was <laughs> part of the interview is Van comes up to me after this horrible experience where I just put my hands up and say no more I'm off and I went at the time I drank and I went down and had a brandy and a Guinness in the bar and we were sitting there Keith Oldham Penny Smith the photographer and myself and I was just going oh, I can't, you know I can't believe that it was just awful 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 mm. and I had a few drinks then Van came over and said you know can I buy you a drink <laughs> so yeah alright then let's not have any grudges here and then he said look okay it wasn't didn't go very well did it no let's do the interview again tomorrow so I said yeah okay we'll do that and, in fact, the next morning I rang him and he, he changed his mind. But then Radford came up to me and he goes, oh, Tony, that was great last night. You know, you just have to sign this release form. And I just said, I will never fucking sign that release form as long as I live. So the film was made, but without the interview. Fantastic. So they should have got it sorted beforehand. Mm. And I just, well, I didn't want that interview to be seen because although Van Morrison assured me I wouldn't come out of it badly, I didn't believe him for a minute. Yeah. Because it had been an awful ordeal. Yeah. <laughs> Fascinating. Yeah, I do think what's interesting is that this was an era in which there was just a lot more access, that journalists could get a lot closer to bands. In a sense, it sort of came full circle, and by, I suppose, by, what, the second half of the 80s? You know, PRs, record companies' PRs, took much more control and shaped the way an interview would, yeah. would turn out much, much more sort I, I mean, of... I mean, last in week... In a much more controlled way. Last week we talked about Barbara Erland's 96 interview with Madonna. And what was extraordinary about that, it was Madonna not mediated by her own PR machine, which she had, but mm. she chose to actually have an absolutely straightforward 75-minute sit-down conversation with Barbara Erland. Mm. And... That was why I think the enemy ran up the front page because mm. you know this just wasn't happening anymore, particularly yeah. artists of a certain stature. But well, I can remember in the era when I was writing f for you at the enemy. I mean, there were a couple of occasions when I wrote less than flattering profiles of major acts, and I'm pretty sure that Warner Brothers threatened to pull advertising. Yeah. I mean, that probably happened to you quite a few times. Yeah, right? It certainly happened to me at least three times in my career that something I had written led to a major record company threatening to pull all advertising yeah, for, for six months or something. I mean, yeah, it's just I mean, so ridiculous. It happened a lot at NME, and mm. also when I went on to edit Sounds, you know, there was frequent threats, and of course things right. were things had changed. But I went to Sounds in July '85, the Live Aid weekend. That's right. It was when the music press was less profitable, advertising was down, um, copy sales were down, and therefore the, they were much more. It was, I mean, it was still big business. They were still making a lot of money, mm. but they were more vulnerable. And so, if somebody like CBS or Warner's threatened to remove the advertising, it was a big deal. It was a big deal. Mm. But I've got to say that at NME and Sounds, I think our answer to that was they could just go fuck off, you know. <laughs> and uh, luckily, we were backed by the management. Yeah. And 
there's probably moderation at times. It was worse for the ad manager, of course, yes. John Newey at Sounds, who had to deal with this. And John Newey was also a big music fan. And he was kind of having to balance that with the commercial aspects of the magazine. So all that went on in the background. Mm. But it didn't stop us doing... You know, I remember Guns N' Roses visiting the sounds office. The the writer Paul Elliott tells a story better than I remember it, in fact. And they turned up to redress the balance, I should should say, (laughs) with uh, a writer called Andy Hurt. And the famous words of Guns N' Roses when they rocked up at the Camden offices of Sounds was, Andy Hurt, he will be when we find him. (laughs) And I was sitting there, and Guns N' Roses weren't successful at the time. And according to Paul Elliott, I called him over and said, get those people out. I think my language was slightly more (laughs) colourful, but was to remove them from the office and get rid of them. I don't think Paul Elliott ever forgave me for putting Crazy Head on the cover rather than Guns N' Roses <laughs> when <laughs> I was edited. <laughs> and of course, Paul was right. <laughs> yes. Um, br- briefly, we've also running your preview of Dark Side of the Moon at Brighton. Tell us a bit about that because it wasn't exactly the smoothest run show you've ever seen in your life. It, it wasn't, no. And talking about, as Barney was, about the access that you had to yeah, act. Yeah. Like, when I first started at NME, I had incredible access and like i've looked i was when i was digging out some stuff for this interview today i found my contact book and at the front it said nick mason it got his address and it got his personal telephone number (laughs) no mobiles in those days (laughs) and i used to just wander up to them i'd met them when i was a freelance yeah yeah. anyway i went down to that this was a big deal they were going to unveil their new music and it was at the brighton dome fabulous venue yeah, yeah, great venue. And they did start to perform this new piece that they tentatively called, well, it was kind of, was it Eclipse or was it Dark Side of the Moon? Right. That was, I think they were kind of trying to work out what they would eventually call it. Mm. And they started to perform it and there was a light show and everything. <laughs> just ground to a halt after about <laughs> half an hour. The whole thing collapsed. And uh, I sort of I went backstage. So I, never, I never thought that this was, you wouldn't get this kind of access, which happened in later years. And Nick Mason was there and he knew me. So I just started chanting with the tape running and said, Well, what happened there? And he got a bit technical with me. <laughs> I, didn't, I didn't quite understand why the sound was going through the same mix as the lighting. But that had caused the disaster. That would have been about a year before Dark Side of the Moon was released. And it just fell to pieces. In fact, I did see Floyd again on that tour um, when they played Lanchester Arts Festival. Mm -hmm. And they played it in its entirety and it worked brilliantly. I mean, I think I still gave them a fantastic review because I absolutely, I thought Floyd were one of the best ever British bands. When you were at Sounds, um, was there any coverage of uh, the sort of what was called new country in those days? Yeah, there was a a bit. I think, I don't know whether John Cougar Mellencamp would fall into that category. Mm. Not quite, but but a million kind of a sort of mainstream 
Americana, you might say, Springsteen and John. But I'm asking because I'm wondering whether anyone was writing about people like Steve Earle in I those think, days. I think we did do yeah. a bit about Steve Earle around about the time of Copperhead Road, it would have yes, been. So, so 89. It's interesting that you should mention Mellencamp because Steve Earle, in what we're about to talk about, which is the audio interview, is like talks about how he had been compared by a number of people to Springsteen and, and Mellencamp. Mellencamp. Yeah. So there is a connection there, without a doubt. I remember reviewing the first album of his Guitar Town for Enemy, and on revisiting it the other day, I realized it wasn't a very positive review, and I did say, this guy's a little bit too Springsteen, really, for my liking. Mm-hmm. He's like positioning himself as a kind of Nashville Springsteen. I mean, I came to like him a lot more, and I've met him a couple of times, and we're essentially real fans of yeah, I, I mean, I came to him very late because for precisely the same reasons, is that the Guitar Town and Copper Road were too Springsteenish for me, and I'm personally not a massive Springsteen fan. And actually, this interview takes place in 96. Here a train come in, has come out. I feel right is about, it's to, about to come about, out. Yeah. It's about to come out. And he was 14 months clean, having yeah. been jailed and all of that sort of stuff. And that was when I got into him. Trainer Coming. Trainer Coming. Was, yeah. was the, the first album of his that I actually loved. Which is much more acoustic. Which is much more acoustic. Yeah. I saw him at the Shepherd's Bush Empire on the tour that he's on when this interview takes place, and it was just an electrifyingly good show. Even almost got to punch up the bloke who's talking through all the acoustic numbers. And that's your that's stuff. My, that's my stuff. <laughs> well, shall we listen yeah. to a bit of Steve? Yeah, well, actually, you know, talking about the addiction, um, this is him, brief excerpt, where he's just talking about... And he talks at length through this interview about his addiction and, his, and drugs. So this is him on that. It's him on drugs. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, I, I've been an addict all my life, but it, it just... What happened to me happens to all addicts. It eventually got to the point that I couldn't do anything else. Just maintaining my habit. I mean, when last time I was in London... You know, um, we wouldn't be sitting here right now. You know, I'd be down between Shepherd's Bush and White City somewhere smoking heroin. That's just where I got my dope in London. And towards, there was a middle period where I was able to do what I was supposed to do. I was able to perform and I was able to record. So that was when? That was kind of... Well, as long as I was making records. When I got, when I got where I, when I got where I was really genuinely afraid I was going to cheat somebody, then I stopped doing it entirely. That's really what There is some film of him in London. Smoking heroin in White City. Pretty close. He's hanging out with the Pogues. <laughs> yeah. Uh, which is pretty close oh. to smoking heroin. <laughs> um, and he looks terrible. You know, he looks absolutely pasty-faced and stringy-haired. So he basically, there's a, there's a great chunk of time when he simply stops making records. He, later on in that interview, he talks about how he'd left MCA, had a really fat, three fat record deals offered to him, waiting for him in New York. If he, and he was about to get on the plane... And suddenly he thought, I haven't got any records to make. And just turned around and walked away. And basically didn't make a record about four, four years, something like that, maybe longer. Ends up in jail. Again, he kind of implies that jail's the best thing that happened to him. Right. Weren't the Pogues involved with Copperhead Road? Weren't some of the Pogues on that I'm record? Not, I, I'm not sure offhand, but... Cert- I think they are. They certainly did appear yeah. so on I'd, one I'd, or more Steve Earle albums. I mean, I remember liking that Copperhead Road for exactly the reasons you didn't like it, Mark, because <laughs> I was a huge Bruce Springsteen right. fan. <laughs> yeah, so... I, mean, I like him when he's in slightly more 
sort of Appalachian mode. Yeah, actually. yeah. I like him a bit more acoustic. I don't yeah. like the sort of full-on sort of sub Springsteen rock, although I think he does kind of rock riffs quite well. The reason we're talking about Steve is because Steve and the Dukes have a new album next week, and it's the second of his kind of homages to his mentors. So the first one was Towns Van Zandt, and this is about Guy Clark. So the first one's called Towns, that was like 10 years ago, and this one's called Guy, and it's basically Guy Clark. Clark songs. He actually played bass on Old Number One, Guy Clark's album from 75. I mean, Steve goes a long way back. Mm-hmm. And look, it's a great interview. Is I it, mean, he's such, a, he's such an interesting, smart, eloquent guy, yeah. isn't he? We'll play another clip now. It's very amusing about his marriages, and by plural, we mean. Already six by this point. Six. Let, let's listen. You've been married quite a few times, haven't you? Mm-hmm. Six. Six. Counting <laughs> twice to Lee, yeah. yeah. And that does count, but I'll take my word for it. <laughs> well, I'm a little ahead of Richard Burton, actually. I'm only 40. Um, <laughs> you know, um, I don't know. I, I'm just not scared of commitments, I guess. I don't know. Uh, I mean, yeah, I know people... I think, to me, it would be odder to be 40 and never have been married than to have been 40 and been married six times. I mean, I kept trying it, trying to get it right, so it didn't fall down to it. Feel his heart as he sang himself. Well, yeah. <laughs> I mean, it's hard to figure out. I mean, that, that, that fearless heart was, you know, um, at least a rationalization of my lifestyle, if not a, if not a, not a uh, um, you know, some sort of uh, statement about my lifestyle at the time. Yeah. You know, I mean... Um, I did everything. I married everybody I married thinking I was going to be with them for the rest of my life. I really did. <laughs> I love that Adam Sweeting the interview goes, six! <laughs> no, it must be pointed out that two of them were to the same person. Yes. Right. Uh, okay. Taylor. Yeah. 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 Burton Taylor. Yeah, Burton Taylor. I mean, you know, he talks a lot about his relationship with the Nashville establishment as it was constituted at that point in 1996, and nothing has changed in its respect. It was basically the Hat Acts were emerging, that sort of really interesting period when people like the Jards and so on were making some pretty interesting but mainstream country music. That was all going. He talks about country radio, how he can't listen to country radio. He says, I'm about to have a hit. I forget who it is, Travis Tritt or someone who covered one of his songs and it was zooming up the charts. He says, I never get to hear it on the radio because it means you just listen to the same five songs. You know. And he's very interesting about Nashville. And again, going back to his drug stuff, about Nashvilles that we don't know about. He talks about North Nashville and South Nashville as being the black parts of town. How all his friends are down there. He said he can't see them anymore. But all his drug contacts. Yeah, well, anyway. the drug contacts. But he, but he says these are people. He, a lot of them are people he really liked, and mm. he can't Absolutely. see them anymore because mm. he can't be around them anymore. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, we have to. You know, Steve was one of the great kind of country rebels. Is still yeah. one of the great country rebels. I think. I mean, he's cut from the same cloth as. Hank Williams, Grand Parsons, you name it. And so he's very much, way before alternative country, uh, he was positioning himself as the alternative to mainstream country. And interestingly, this is 96, he's already, he talks in the interview about Son Volt and Wilco. So he's really had it, but he also talks about gangster rap. I think one of the things I really love about Steve Earle is his just extremely sort of Catholic, eclectic taste. He's just very sort of savvy about music in general. Talking about North and South Nashville, he said, you know, there's a time in his life when 
just about all he listened to was hip hop because those are the people he was hanging around with. Mm. You know, when he's going down to school heroin and mm. South, Na- South better National, quality yeah. of drug, better mm. quality of drug. <laughs> also, he talks about in terms of drugs. He talks about that you know heroin is hard to find in the South in Nashville. So Delorded, which is effectively a precursor, was the canary in the coal mine to the current. Uh, yeah, exactly. Crisis. The opioid crisis in America mm. it was a prescription opioid which could be ground up, mixed with water, and shut up, mm. and and that's what they did. So it's a very interesting glimpse into the beginning of this current crisis. Yeah. He's terrific. I mean, he's fantastic in The Wire. I yes, mean, basically playing himself. You know, yes. playing his clean self. You know. Yes. Uh, uh, yeah. Oh, of course. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. He's a he's a he's a smart dude. Um, we like him. We like Steve. Are we going to listen to one more clip? We'll play one at the end. A very amusing thing on Garth Brooks. Which oh, <laughs> yes. The, the anti-Steve Earl, yeah, one might no. almost say. Yes, well, in um, fact, his friend says, he quotes a friend as saying that he's the anti-Hank. The anti-Hank, yes. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So that's a very long audio interview from 1996 with Steve Earl. We're going to now just address some of the other free stuff. So Tony, sitting here with me, is the featured writer on the homepage. So we've talked about those. The other free stuff concerns Lana Del Rey, very different from, well, Freddie Mercury, very different from <laughs> Steve Earl. Uh, she has uh, the aforementioned new album out next week. Do you want to just repeat the title? I can't even remember what it is. <laughs> <laughs> no, I'm just going to say it again. Norman Beeping as... Rockwell. Um, and so but she's probably as precocious as Freddie Mercury, isn't she? Well, <laughs> yes and no. I mean, I do think Lana Del Rey is a genuinely interesting figure, a genuinely sort of enigmatic character. You know, there was this huge sort of wave of hype when video games came out. And the, the two, the first piece we have is actually an interview from The Quietus in 2011 when video games has just come out. The first album, Born to Die, is not yet out. And John Calvert is asking her about things like David Lynch, you know. You clearly have been <laughs> watching yeah. Mulholland Drive. Lana Del Rey is an interesting kind of modern pop diva in that she's very much played with this alter ego, this persona that she's created for her real name's Elizabeth Grant. She invented this idea of a, this character almost, Lana Del Rey. And it's it's very noir-esque. It's very David Lynch. It's this sort of strange, really quite sort of warped noir Americana. I think she's interesting. I, I don't know that I sort of with each successive album do I really think the music is that great. But I understand that she offers a real alternative to the Taylor Swift of this universe. Yeah, yeah. It'll be interesting to see whether Norman beeping Rockwell is an advance on what she's done before. So three pieces. I'm Roy Trakin writing about seeing her at the Shrine Exposition Hall in LA in 2014. And then Maura Johnston reviewing the most recent album, which is 2017's Lust for Life. So now I'm going to ask you, Mark, to talk about the new pieces for subscribers. Well, I mean, the first piece is utterly hilarious. It's kind of, in his own words, though obviously in an interview with a man called Ken Brown, who was a, a founder member of the Quarrymen, who later became the Beatles. Oh, right. Okay. And at this point, he's living in a caravan, 
bitterly viewing the Beatles on television and so on and so forth. So it's about, basically, he talks about kind of being a Beatle, even though he technically wasn't, he was a quarry man. And the first part of the article, he basically talks about all their wives and girlfriends. He goes on a lot about George Harrison's then-girlfriend, Ruth Morrison, and he talks about Cynthia Lennon at, at some length. He sort of claims he was the prime mover of the band, getting him to this club called the Casbah, which was run by Pete Best's mother, another ex-Beatle. So it's really early Beatles. It's very early, stuff, but, 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 but he's there's a hilarious bit is how he basically got fired he injured his leg when they were meant to be playing at the Casbah and Mrs Best asked him to run the door while the rest of the band played the set she still paid him she says just as everyone was going home I was sitting in the club when Paul came back down the stairs hey Ken what's all this he said what I asked him Mrs Best said she's paying you even though you didn't play with us tonight that's up to her I replied as Paul bounded back up the stairs still arguing over it with Mrs Best they all came downstairs to me. We think your 15 bob should be divided between us as you didn't play tonight, said Paul. That's up to Mrs Best, I said, as the argument continued. By this time, we were all shouting, and Mrs Best insisted on paying me the 15 shillings. Right, that's it then, shouted Paul, and they stormed off down the drive towards West Derby Village, shouting they had never played the Casbar again. That wasn't the last time I saw them, or the last time they played the Casbar, though we didn't play together again. I hadn't left the Beatles, the Beatles had left me. <laughs> It, wow. It, it, it's absolutely... Well, he doesn't That's even brilliant. have a kind of footnote in history, this guy, really. Yeah, I mean, he, he, a lot of people have heard of Pete Best and Stuart yeah, Sutcliffe, yeah, but yeah, I don't think I, anyone's I, ever I heard of this the, guy. Though we, we were, before this podcast, we were discussing whether he actually existed, so I looked him up on Wikipedia. He did, and apparently he continued to make records, probably in his caravan, that he was selling through his website up to his death. So not so Shea Stadium. Not Shea Stadium. And he wasn't the character that Alan Bleasdale created. Boys from the Black stuff. (laughs) Yeah, job I could have done that. Yeah, (laughs) I could be a Beatle. Next piece is a year later, September sixty-five. Nick Jones, splendid Nick Jones, um, Max's son, reviewing Lulu and the Lovers at the Marquee Club, and this just struck me because I remember as a kid seeing Lulu and the Lovers doing their version of the Isley Brothers' Shout on television and being electrified by it. And he talks about how she just tears the roof off the Marquee Club that night. And, you know, we tend to forget what a great R&B singer Lulu was. And she was part of a real tradition of particularly women, Scottish R&B singers. I mean, Maggie Bell is straight out of the same tradition, you know, passionate about black music, real hollerers, you know. And Lulu's, in recent years, slightly reclaimed this as a TV documentary with her and Van Morrison, fun enough, both sort of doing stuff with Jeff Beck playing guitar and all that. But she was lost to M.O.R., you know, popular TV for a long time. But Lulu was a seriously decent artist. And can still sing. And And can can still still sing. sing. Absolutely. I mean, I I interviewed Lulu for NME uh, when she did uh, Bowie's Man, Sold the World. Sold the World, yeah. And we went up to, I think it was Leicester. She was playing something like a top hat club. And she was like an M.O.R. artist. But she was was quite rock and roll. She got absolutely slaughtered on champagne. Excellent. Good girl. Was when I was interviewing her, she fell off the bed. But we're in a, we're in a holiday in yeah. room, continuing the interview, and she continued talking. And I just thought, God, that is stylish. Yeah. You know, to be, 
to be that intoxicated but continue the interview yeah. and yes. I think we used to do sort of off the wall features in NME and mm. Lula was an off the wall feature yeah. but it's perfectly true she was a great R&B yeah. singer yeah. in her and, day and, and loved it was re- yeah. she, she, she loved the music you and know. of course Hendrix did one of his early but TV I, appearances on the Lulu I'm, show I, I remember watching that yeah. and they were meant to only do like two numbers and ended up sprawling over what was basically the end of the show and she looks shell shocked at the end she said that's Jimi Hendrix and that's the end of the show yeah, yeah, because he said something like, let's, let's, I don't know whether it's Hey Joe. Yeah, no, hey, he, he, he was playing, she had asked him to play Hey Joe. He started and said, that's enough of this rubbish, and went into yeah. Sunshine of Your Love. That's right, yeah, um, the cream one. Yeah, yeah. So, um, dedicating it to the band had just broken up, Cream had yeah, literally just right. broken up. And I think they did Voodoo Child as well. Anyway, it, 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 it was a slight return, and it's actually one of the best live Hendrix things I've ever seen. I mean, it stands up really well today. The marvellous bit when his guitar goes out to you, and he just like, Grins at Mitch Mitchell, walks it back into tune and carries on. Great stuff. But yeah, dear old Lulu. I'm sure Barney will have something to say about the next piece. 72, Danny Holloway, enemy interview with Lou Adler on the Mamas and Papas and much else. This certainly caught my eye because I don't think there were that many interviews with Lou Adler. So for, for those who don't know, Lou Adler was a real mover and shaker on the LA scene of the 60s and 70s. I mean, he was the guy behind Johnny Rivers. He was the leading light behind the Monterey Pop Festival yep. with John Phillips of Mamas and Papas. And of course, he was the manager and producer of Carole King when she launched her solo career and you interviewed Carole King you wrote you wrote, wrote an enemy piece about yeah. Carole King I always thought Lou was a really interesting guy and when I went to LA to do interviews for my LA book Waiting for the Sun I thought there was really no chance of getting to Lou Adler because he just seemed like this very kind of remote sort of powerful figure but thanks to the late great Derek Taylor I got to come in with people like Lou if Derek Taylor said you should talk to Barney I, the door would normally open because everybody loved yeah. Derek so much so I literally got word that Lou Adler was like Mr. Adler doesn't normally do interviews but if Derek says so <laughs> come out to Malibu in, in, in like an hour I literally had to drop everything and drive out to Malibu and get I mean you know it was quite a long way from where I was staying and I remember this just extraordinary like beachside you know mogul's home <laughs> with a view out across the Pacific and you know, it was, it was quite intimidating, you know, but he was very, he was really, really interesting. I mean, as it turned out, he didn't become the emperor of Los Angeles because while he was sleeping on his watch, you know, David Geffen <laughs> kind of <laughs> cracked around him and, 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 and Geffen became the real king of yeah. the LA. I mean, it's interesting, he crossed over between out and out LA pop and sort of inverted commas more serious stuff in terms mm, of spirits of course spirit you know but particularly Carol King, Carole um, King. I, mean, I love this quote about when he first met the mamas and papas and they, they auditioned with California Dream in Monday Monday he just rattled off five great songs I was astounded yes. I couldn't believe it and you know you can imagine well, that I yeah. remember him yeah. telling me about a very very graphic sense yeah. of them just coming to his living room and just singing and he said he just never heard harmonies like it yeah yeah It's a very interesting piece, really well worth reading. Uh, and it was Danny Holloway that hooked NME into a lot of American stuff at that time, because right. Danny 
was, I hope he doesn't mind me saying this, he might be listening. <laughs> he was a kind of long-haired American hippie that, yeah. that yeah. worked on NME, but not just American stuff. He introduced me to David Bowie's Hunky Dory. Did he? Yeah, he was a, a big supporter of that. Was he based in LA? Danny? No, no. He, he was he never worked, based no, in LA. No, he worked no. out of our Carnaby Street offices. Because he wrote offices. a lot of LA, LA stuff. Well, I mean, that's what, yeah. what you're saying is that, that that's what he loved. Sort of yeah, stuff, yeah, so. yeah that's, that, that he hooked us into that. And then, of okay. course, Danny went on to work for Island Records. And, and then got really into dance music. Dance I mean, even music. now he's like a kind yeah, of DJ, isn't he? He's a DJ. quite interesting career. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Jumping forward a decade, Edwin Collins, Orange Juice's Edwin Collins interview by Matt Snow. It's a curious interview because, I mean, the band are pretty much about to break up. You know, he doesn't say that. But he's looking back already with regret at their sort of semi successful career. They had the occasional single, Got Away, Rip It Up, and so on. And, and his, re- his regret is that he fired musicians from the band who he said he missed badly once they were gone you know he only kept one musician the drummer Zeke Manioka throughout the sort of period well Zeke was in the second iteration that, well, of Orange Juice anyway yeah there you go yeah. I, mean, I mean you never think of Orange Juice as a band with a massive turnover in fact literally they, they turned over 100% twice effectively wow. you know, I know it's really something and he's kind of a bit downbeat he f- feels a bit depressive really I'm looking and seeing that this would have been done on your watch Tony it's, it's uh, 84 absolutely um, you, I'm not suggesting you might remember actually commissioning Matt to write this but I did want to ask just interject a question here because when I think of that era this is already 84 but you think of Edwin Collins you think of Orange you think of the C81 tape and I think of yeah. kind of people People like Morley writing about all these indie scenes like Postcard in Glasgow. And, and I just wondered what your memories were of that time when, when the Morleys and Penmans and so forth were, were writing about all these incredible indie bands that do- sort of dominated the scene at that time. Well, yeah, I think it was really exciting. And Morley and Penman, Morley particularly, were very, very enthusiastic about the music they brought into the office. And, of course, we were, certainly in 84, I'd stopped writing well, writing major features. I was mm. deputy editor mm. of NME then. Mm. And I still insisted on commissioning and doing layouts and things because I loved working with the writers. So there was a, a great enthusiasm. I look back on it and I think we probably allowed too much indulgence. We didn't edit the writers enough. Me included. <laughs> I mean, I mean, Ian Penman has now become, I think, a truly great writer. He writes lengthy pieces in London Review of Books, which are really fantastic writing. I find his stuff almost incomprehensible, particularly around sort of 80, 80, 79. Are you saying 80, that's Tony's fault? Almost like <laughs> we, we named the guilty men. Uh, I mean, my idea of hell is to proof up a 3,000-word Ian Pemmon interview with Green from Scritty Policy, because you'd need a, deg- a degree in modern French philosophy to understand a word they're saying. You know, There were the, challenges, the, yes. There are some Paul Morley pieces where I literally don't know what he's talking about. I mean, there's, like, there's a couple of huge live reviews where it's, what is he saying? Even and yeah, been when back. I was the live editor. <laughs> <laughs> it was, it was, these were interesting times. They were interesting times. I mean, I look back now and I think, my God, how did I get away with that? You know, I mean, I really, you know, wrote some real guff and and <laughs> just just sort of pretentious nonsense. We named really. the guilty men. No, but I mean, you know, and you just all thought, oh well, I'm getting away with yeah, it. Yeah. I'll, I'll, I'll have some more. Well, of I it. think that that's that, that's the weight of a music journalist throughout music journalism. I look yeah. back and reviewing Dark Side 
of the Moon, the album. <laughs> Thank God, what am I on about? <laughs> I didn't really know what the yeah. album was about. I, mean, you know, I think that that still probably applies. Doesn't it still it? makes for a lot of interesting reading, and it's so much better than sort of a lot of the bland stuff, which is kind of pushed out today. Moving on to 1992, Mail on Sunday, Marl Peachy, a recent recruit to Rock's Back Pages. This was printed eight days after she tore up a picture of the Pope on Saturday Night Live. The interview must have taken place about four days afterwards. And she says, I believe the Catholic Church wants children to be abused, because unless we're being abused, they don't have any power. Obviously, in the light of kind of recent events... You realise that she was actually slightly closer to the truth than anyone wanted to talk about. Marl, I emailed him yesterday and he wrote back, I told him we were running the piece and he said she was in a real state when he interviewed her. She was tearful, almost, he felt she was losing her grip. Uh, her moorings were slipping and she, you know, she was distressed, a very, very distressed woman. It's very good. I mean, Marl's very good because he doesn't judge her. I mean, which for mm. a, a male on Sunday piece, you'd imagine that's exactly the sort of thing they'd mm. do, you know. Mm. He, he lets her say what she's saying and he, he doesn't really qualify it, which is, mm. I think, a very con- delicate kind of thing I think it do. probably was a huge moment in her career and it doesn't surprise me to hear that she sort of felt she'd lost her moorings yeah. the day after I mean the famous thing I remember is that she walked off stage after being sort of roundly booed yeah. by everybody and into the consoling arms of Chris Christopherson yes um, and and you know it may be that she did sort of start to unravel after that time because she's had, as we all know, some serious mental health yeah. issues, poor Sinead. That experience yeah. kind of helped. She, she talks into you about being effectively abused by her family, by her, her parents. Yeah. Um, what she means by abuse is kind of quite hard to judge. But, yeah. you know, she'd had a distinctly troubled life mm. from the get-go, mm. you know. I uh, think so. Um, Did you have anything to do with Sinead? Yeah, well, as the editor yeah. sounds, yeah, we, we really supported Sinead sure. and and we and Scanlon and Mary Scanlon yeah. we became pretty close with Sinead because of the Irish connection right. yes. and I suppose in a way my late wife was Irish so mm. I had a strong connection to Ireland and to the philosophy to the music yes. etc yeah. I mean she was all, Sinead O'Connor was always a fractured figure wasn't yeah. she and I remember once she just disappeared and there was a search on Facebook yeah, for her that right. a yeah. lot of people thought she'd Gone away to take her own yeah. life. Which was this in the was this in the this was quite relatively recent. That's fairly yeah. recently, yeah. yeah. yeah but I she know, was. Awful, but awful. she's just such a fantastic artist yeah. as well, and yeah. a fascinating person. So that's kind of from yeah. a journalistic point of view. That is the kind of thing you really absolutely. would like. Yeah, absolutely. Last thing I really want to look at is a pretty big piece by William Shaw of The Observer in July 96, basically on the East Coast, West Coast hip-hop wars, focusing specifically on Tupac, who he got to interview. This is only months before Tupac was killed. It's a much bigger piece, and he talks to Ice Cube and all kinds of others, talks to people on the, the East Coast about this, that, and the other, the futility of it and the nastiness of it. But he does get to sit down with Tupac, and he says it's now well over a year since the shooting, when Tupac was shot in his recording yeah. studio. And since then, he's had a new tattoo. This reads, Trust Nobody. Trust nobody? How deep does that sentiment go? It was from being shot, set up by your own friends, says Tupac. For a long time after the shooting, Tupac had post-traumatic stress. He was played by nightmares. I asked him if he still dreams about it. No. He holds up a fat joint rolled with cigar leaves. No, I medicate. And what did it feel like when he was lying on the ground shot? 
He pauses. It felt like violation. Some niggers touched me in a way that was all about revenge. The violation was that deep. I mean, talking about unhinged people, I think that Tupac was someone who actually became unmoored in a variety of ways. You know, personally, I mean, I like a lot of hip hop. I like quite a lot of gangster rap. You know, I, I just choose not to listen to the words too closely. <laughs> but, you know, some of it's really interesting. But this was a really dark and nasty period. Suge Knight had pretty much taken over all of the the old reckless records acts and got them into death row. The fights were being stoked up every time they'd meet at some convention, a Vibe Records convention, where fights would break out and so on and so forth. And of course, Tupac was shot after. It was, a, was it after seeing Mike Tyson fight in Las Vegas. Vegas. About a year after that, Biggie was killed as well. You read this and it's just, this is ridiculous. What are these people doing, mm. you know? What did, people perhaps didn't foresee was that gangster rap would, in fact, be run by real gangsters. gangsters. <laughs> <laughs> uh, well, in, in, one what? in one particular <laughs> case, yeah, absol abso you know. absolutely. I mean, it's interesting is, is that Shug is now back in jail, having kind of murdered someone by running him over on the set of the movie about the whole scene, you know. Shug Knight was just... It was a, psych a monster, uh, monster really. a psychopath. Yeah. It's very interesting history. And, mm. I mean, there have been some couple of really good books written about it. Mm. It's probably an even better book eventually to be written about it when people, mm. more people feel they can talk. There's something really quite extraordinary. These kids in Compton, and, which is a south-central suburb of Los Angeles, kind of break out of it. In the classic hip-hop way, people doing music for themselves. You've got Dr. Dre on the turntables. You've got these kids. And it becomes huge. And it becomes huge. And it becomes, and it, and it becomes very good. They've got enough talent there. Dr. Dre, particularly as a producer, was able to assemble records which absolutely sound fabulous today. Yeah. They yeah. sound fabulous, yeah. deeply funky, really, really good stuff. And Biggie was a genius, uh, well, well, particularly. Uh, uh, I mean, to uh, me, more than Tupac, I really yeah. did love. Oh, ab absolutely. I mean, I would say, yeah, my favorite is Snoop mm. Dogg. I think Snoop Dogg has just got the best sure. delivery of anyone. Yeah, nigga, I'm still fucking with you. Still waters run deep. Still Snoop Dogg and DIA. Nah, nah, nigga. Guess who's back? So it's a classic hip-hop story in the way it comes about, but there's the nature of Compton in those days. I hear it's a hell of a lot better. But in those days, the gang warfare was just terrifying. And it's all about that. These two different, basically overall gangs, the Bloods and the Crips, of course, there are a lot of sub-gangs within that. And that was Shug. Shug was, an, uh, was that kind of gangster. And it, it's poisonous. It's a, it's a good piece. There are a lot of good pieces because it was fascinating. Mm. Um, I always like John Mendelssohn's piece, the unpublished but in Playboy yeah. piece. But anyway, so the, that's my lot. What have, what have you yeah. got? No, I, I haven't got an awful lot to comment on, but you can kind of bring things neatly full circle, perhaps, by looking. There's a, there's a piece by Tim Footman which references the famous C86 cassette that NME put out. Now, you were probably gone by then gone. I think you were gone, gone weren't you yeah but it's but it's it's something that's important in the enemy story this this tape that came out full of really rather sort of weedy indie bands like the shop assistants <laughs> um, <laughs> who never really uh, achieved any primal scream were on it but they were all these slightly sort of wimpy kids you know playing sort of altitude guitars and then 10 years later and this is what Tim is looking back at there was a C96 tape that nobody remembers even though there were bands like Mogwai on it but so he's kind of saying <laughs> C86 was actually quite important quite an influential kind of indie artifact 
And whereas C96 doesn't seem to have influenced anything at all. Um, but, I mean, it, I don't know. It reminds me, because I mentioned earlier the C81 tape. Now, yeah. I really loved that. So when I was just starting to write for Enemies, like the first things that you commissioned me to do, that tape came out, and it very much was... One always misremembers things, but to me, it was a really neat encapsulation of what the Enemy was about at that point in time which was a kind of mixture of interesting indie bands like postcard bands like joseph k orange yeah. juice but also james blood alma was on there i think um oh, right. and various other kind of apparently anomalous things like that and it was just uh, to me i really I, I really liked that and i thought you know i'm really pleased i'm writing for this paper because this there's something good about almost every track on this. Do you remember C81 at all? Not Would particularly. Would Roy well, have put Roy, that together Roy with... Carr, Roy yes. Carr put together all the, all the, the music tapes. things, mm. yeah. Of course, in the early days, we Enemy did flexi-discs. Yes. <laughs> then, yes. Then it kind of graduated onto other things. We did hard vinyl EPs. Yeah. For which Roy made um, the late. Oh, my Roy, yeah. my friend Kev Hopper's band Stumper on Stumper. C6. Yeah. They were absolutely yeah, Stumper on no, I mean, it is an extraordinary lineup of, kind of third-rate stuff. Mighty, <laughs> the Mighty Lemon Drops, the Soup Dragons, the Wolf Hands. The, the, the names sort of say yeah, everything. The Bodies, yeah. Mighty Mighty Stump, Bogshed, the Great Bogshed, a uh, <laughs> witness, the Pastels, and I think the Pistons, Pastels, you know, Age it's of all, Chance. It's all it's all fairly sort of insipid stuff, except for Stump, of course, my friend. Except, Ken <laughs> yeah, um, I think Roy did a brilliant job putting these things together, did. and you know they obviously were. They were kind of influential for the time, you know, if you just take it for that I heard, moment in time. I heard yeah. The Sweetest Girl by Scritti Politi on it. That was on it. That was on C81. Sweetest yeah. Girl was yeah, on it. Yeah, yeah. First time I heard it. Mm. That was, C81 was great because it had all kinds of batty stuff on yeah, it. Yeah, well, um, exactly. I seem to remember it had that marvellous kind of breakfast in bed reggae version was on that. Can't remember well, it was that. certainly on an enemy cassette. They were something to look forward to. So that sort of brings brings everything full circle. Yep. It's been a lot of, of enemy, a whole lot of our good friend, Tony Stewart. Thank you so much for coming and yeah. being part of our podcast today, Tony. It's been, well, I mean, I know we could talk me. for another three hours, <laughs> if not longer. Um, but, you know, from a personal point of view, and I hope from our listeners' point of view, it's just been really interesting yeah. to hear about those days in music journalism and, and you know, your your part in it. So um, I hope you've enjoyed it. Yeah, have enjoyed it's been here. great. Yeah, it's, it's a bit ironic in that <laughs> last weekend, I got two inquiries. One was from somebody who's going to start putting on classic albums in cinemas and they're going to start with Dark Side of the Moon right. oh. I mentioned this to Mark yeah. <laughs> yes. they got in touch with me and said would I introduce it and I yes. said well unfortunately I'm away on the day and they said well we'll FaceTime you we'll FaceTime you <laughs> and then somebody got in touch with me and said they interview me regarding my Is This Man of Pratt Freddie Mercury piece because they're writing a book on Queen yeah. and I kind of thought who needs another book on Queen? But I'll talk about Is This Man a Pratt? So it's kind of a bit ironic that I left the music press in the early 90s. And you're more in demand than ever. Well, no, 21 years of my life as a national newspaper journalist have been completely forgotten and nobody ever asks me <laughs> about <laughs> what happened at the Daily Mirror. Oh, you're so popular. So popular oh, I'm so sorry we didn't have time yeah. to, to get into that. Nobody asks me about Elsie Tanner. <laughs> I, do, I mean, I do think it is really, you know, 
Freddie Mercury, in a sense, after Bohemian Rhapsody, is, is a bigger star in pop culture than ever. So, so anyone who actually interviewed him, I mean, well, yeah, you're I was, invaluable. I was kind of curious when I've seen Bohemian Rhapsody, obviously, and didn't think much of the film, but thought the performance as Freddie Mercury was brilliant. So did I. But I, I kind of took exception to, the, I think it was the Guardian review, when somebody dug up my Is This Man a Pratt feature and uh, sort of referred to me as being a self-important journalist. But I just thought, well, it wasn't really the, that wasn't how I was. And also, when I watched Bohemian Rhapsody, I thought, well, what relevance did that have in the grand scheme of things? Just for the Guardian journalist to show his knowledge. Yes, well. Rather show off. You put your finger on that. <laughs> and on that, that happened. Note, I think we're going to play out with Steve Earle expressing his opinion on Garth Brooks. Bye! Goodbye! Goodbye! <laughs> Do you have any uh, printable remarks you would make about Garth Brooks? Or, uh... <laughs> <laughs> Garth Brooks. I miss Garth Brooks. I mean, I, I sort of was... Uh, uh, not, I was out of circulation during when Garth became very, very big, and from what I've heard since I've been back, I, you know, I have a friend in Australia who calls Garth Brooks the anti-Hank. <laughs> it's like, yeah. I don't get it. No, <laughs> I, don't, I don't get it. He's huge, and so I, I'm wrong. I'll be the first to admit I have to be wrong. The number of records that he sells, and there's other things that I'm wrong about too. But I don't get it. No. That was Steve Earle in conversation with Adam Sweeting in 1996, concluding this week's Rocks Back Pages podcast. Many thanks to special guest Tony Stewart, who joined hosts Barney Hoskins and Mark Pringle. The podcast was produced by Jasper Murison Bowie. You can find thousands of articles, as well as hundreds of full-length audio interviews, at rocksbackpages.com. Biggie, 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 can't you see? Sometimes your words just hypnotize me. And I just love your flashy ways. Uh, guess that's why they're broken.